Wow. Thank you very much, guys. It's a real uh, privilege, a real joy to be here this day. Thank you so much for having me. And I'm really excited to be part of this series, Love Matters. The guys have told me kind of what you're doing over these, I think it's 10 weeks, and it just sounds brilliant. It's so, so vitally important that we really engage with these topics and that we hear what God says, and we hear that it is good news, that God has good news to say on relationships and singleness and sexuality. And I'm really excited to get to talk about the topic of singleness today. Because singleness is a huge issue. It's a huge issue in the world around us. It's a huge issue for us in the church. And I'm always aware when we start to talk about singleness in churches, there'll be kind of various reactions. Some of us who are single might be thinking, yes, finally, it's our day. It's our turn. They're talking about us. Some of us who are married might be thinking, oh, dear, I've come on the wrong week. It's not relevant. You know, is he going to notice if I kind of slip out the back just right now? Which is why, actually, it's useful to start by pointing out that singleness is important for every one of us to think about. Whether we're married or single, this is a topic we need to think about, we need to engage with. Let me give you three quick reasons why that is the case. First, it's just because singleness is actually a universal part of human experience. All of us are born single and live the first part of our lives single. And actually, statistically speaking, the majority of us will end our lives single. So even if we find ourselves married now, there's a good chance that we'll spend some of the rest of our lives as a single person. This is relevant to all of us, whatever our current situation. It's also really important for all of us to think about because singleness is becoming more common. So a study a few years ago found that 47% of the population in Great Britain are married, but 57% of weekly church attenders are married. It's about 10% more. And then it found that 29% of the Great British population have never been married, but only 20% of weekly church attenders have never been married. Again, a kind of 10% discrepancy. So there's 10% more married people in churches than the world around us, and 10% fewer nether marrieds than the world around us, which might suggest that we're not quite doing church in such a way or inviting people to follow Jesus in such a way that singles actually find they can come and be part of our family. They can find real life in following Jesus. Those stats should make us stop and think, we need to think about this topic. And finally, singleness is just something that every one of us needs to think about because as Christians, we're called to care and love for one another. It's not kind of go off and do this thing on your own, be a lone ranger. It's be family. And you can only really care and love for someone if you understand something of what life is like for them. So all of us need to think about singleness because many of our brothers and sisters in our family will be single. And we want to think, how do we best love and care for them? And I guess when we start to think about singleness as Christians, the kind of fundamental issue or, or the big question we inevitably start to think is, is singleness really a good thing? And is it really possible to thrive as a single pe person? Because I think many people think that's not possible. Definitely in the world outside the church, many people think that. Even in the church, I think we think that. We see that when we say, you know, oh, it's such a shame they're still single. We say that, and clearly we think that we, that shows we think singleness isn't good. Or even if we use the phrase not yet married, kind of implies that marriage is a goal and you haven't quite reached it if you haven't got there. You look around, many of our leaders are often unmarried. Or what I notice is sometimes parents say, oh, you know, my daughter's got married. She's sorted. We've got one left to go. <laughs> clearly, we don't think singleness is good if you're not sorted until you're out of singleness. We've got to ask this question, is singleness good? Can you really thrive as a Christian single? Because we often say no, but the Bible takes a very different view. 
If you look in the New Testament, both Jesus and the Apostle Paul think that singleness is really good. In fact, we're going to see the Apostle Paul even thinks that singleness may be better than marriage. It's a good thing for us. And so what we're going to do with our time is to explore what does the Bible say about singleness, about this gift of singleness, this opportunity to thrive in life. And then we need to ask, well, how do we live as the kind of churches who make it possible to live as a single following Jesus and to really, really thrive? There's going to be stuff that every one of us needs to think about, respond to, put into action in our lives to make this a reality. Before we dive into what the Bible says, let me quickly tell you a bit more about myself, why for me this is a topic I love to think about, why for me this is in a sense a real-life issue, not an abstract issue. So I grew up in a church context down on the south coast where I actually still live. And as I kind of looked down the timeline of my life, I thought, obviously, I'll get married in my early 20s, I'll get a kind of decent job, settle down, have a few kids... That just seemed to be very clearly the good Christian thing to do. It's what everybody around me seemed to do. It seemed to be what was kind of suggested from the pulpit was the right thing to do. And then I reached my early teen years, and I discovered that I'm same-sex attracted, or I'm gay. So my romantic and sexual desires are for guys rather than for girls. But at the time, and still now as I've read the Bible and wrestled with it and studied it, I believe that God has revealed that sex and romance are revealed for marriages between one man and one woman. And so the last kind of, I don't know, 13, 14 years of my life have been wrestling with what does it look like to be a gay guy who wants to faithfully follow Jesus? And for me, as someone who doesn't feel I can enter into an opposite-sex marriage, I think that means being single and being celibate and not having sex. And so I've been on this journey of what does it look like? How do I thrive as a follower of Jesus, as someone who's single, as someone who probably will be single for the rest of my life? You're, I know, going to address the topic of sexuality later in this series, so today we're focusing on the singleness bit. But actually, I don't think you can understand the Bible's teaching on sexuality until you understand the Bible's teaching on singleness. So it's really good that we're doing this first. And maybe it's also worth just saying, I am not coming to you today saying that I've got all the wisdom on this. I know that in this room there will be wonderful, faithful followers of Jesus who've been single for many more years than I have, who could give us wonderful lessons. But my hope and prayer is that as we look at God's word together, as we wrestle with this, think about this together, each one of us is going to be challenged. Each one of us is going to be encouraged. There's going to be comfort. We need comfort, hope, but we need hope. And God's going to show us the beauty of his plan and how we get to play a part in living that out. So let's open up the Bible, we'll see what we find out about singleness. We're going to go to um, the letter, actually, that Simon spoke from last week to 1 Corinthians, to chapter 7. You might want to turn there if you've got a Bible. This is the Apostle Paul, one of the early church leaders, writing to a church in the ancient Greek city of Corinth. And it's a church which, frankly, was in a bit of a mess. Paul's heard reports through various people. He's had letters from them himself. And in this letter, he's going through addressing all kinds of issues that they've raised. And in particular, or when we get to, he's addressing marriage and singleness in chapter 7. And this is actually quite a long chapter. It's quite a complex chapter. And so because of time, rather than kind of reading it through as a whole and working through it, I'm going to try and distill down for you what Paul is saying in this chapter. But I encourage you, have a Bible open or get it on your phone, whatever. Check the verses I'm saying. Check that what I'm saying is what Paul is saying. And I encourage you afterwards, read through the chapter as a whole and see how all these pieces kind of go together. So it seems the Corinthians have written a letter to Paul. And they've asked some sort of question or made some sort of statement, it's not quite clear, in this letter about whether it's good to be married or not. And the answer Paul gives in this chapter is, yes, it is good to be married. And, yes, it is good Maybe it's even better to be single. 
That's the first point we see. We see that Paul has a personal preference for singleness. The key verse is verse 7. He says to them, I wish that all were as I myself am. He's a single guy. He's saying, I wish actually that every one of you could be like me, could live as a single person. We see the same several times in the chapter. The very next verse, he says in verse 8, to the unmarried and widows, I say it's good for them to remain single as I am. Being in a single state, he says, is a good thing. Or near the end of the chapter, talking to those who are betrothed, which is kind of the ancient equivalent of engagement, he says, he who marries his betrothed does well. And he who refrains from marriage will do even better. He says, if you're engaged and you get married, that's great, you do well. But actually, he says, if you're engaged and you choose actually not to get married, you do even better. Singleness is a good thing. Or right at the very end of the chapter, he talks to widows. He says, they are completely free to marry someone because their husband has died. Yet, he says, in my judgment, she's happier if she remains as she is. Paul clearly thinks that singleness is a good thing. He actually says singleness is a better thing than marriage. He must believe that you can be a Christian follower of Jesus who's single, and you can really thrive in life. You can really thrive in that state. But also, he doesn't want us to misunderstand what he's saying. Because he does say he wishes everyone was single. He seems to think singleness is better. He doesn't want us to make, that make, us, doesn't want to make us think that that means marriage is bad. Saying one thing is better doesn't mean the other is bad. You might have know, a personal preference for a certain supermarket. You might even have reasons to defend your decision. That doesn't mean that people shouldn't go to other supermarkets or that other supermarkets aren't good. You might think the 9.30 a.m. service is better than the 11.30 a.m. service. You may have reasons to defend that, but that doesn't mean the 11.30 service is bad or you don't think people should go there. To say something's better doesn't mean the other thing is bad. Paul wants us to get that singleness may actually be better, but it doesn't mean marriage is bad. In fact, he says that in verse 7. He says that statement, I wish all as I myself am. I wish everyone was single, but each has his own gift from God. One of one kind and one of another. He's saying both marriage and singleness are gifts of God. They're both good gifts of God, given to different people at different times. God distributes these gifts. And as we talk about the gift of marriage and singleness, maybe it's worth at this point noticing, when he says that in that verse there, there's no hint that there's some sort of uh, superpower of singleness. It's not a gift as in you've got to be a superhero to endure this awful, awful situation, and very few people can manage it, so God gives you the special power to do it. That's not what he's saying. There's no hint in what we've just read that that's what's going on. He's saying that the state of being a single person or the state of being a married person is a gift from God. Both of them are good gifts, and it's the, the kind of just the being in that position, which is the gift that God gives to us, which must mean that actually both of them are situations in life, ways of living life, that as followers of Jesus, we can truly thrive. We can truly find fullness of life. But Paul, being the wise writer that he is, he also knows that as he says to them, my preference is for singleness, he knows there are other misunderstandings that they could uh, hear, they could kind of wrongly go into. And so as you read through the chapter, you find there are two misunderstandings in particular that Paul clarifies and pushes back against. And we need to highlight those too. Because one misunderstanding he knew people might be thinking as he says singleness is good and singleness is even better is the idea that you can be single as a Christian and you can still be having sex. Because in ancient Corinth, that would have been a very common view. In that kind of ancient Roman world, as a high-status man, you would basically marry a high-status woman to get a legitimate heir. 
And you were then free to sleep with pretty much any woman or any man you wanted, so long as they weren't married to someone else, and so long as they weren't a freeborn Roman. So it was very possible to be a single person and to be having plenty of sex. And we live in a world today where it's very possible and acceptable in the culture around us to be a single person and to have plenty of sex. We live in a world where there's something called the hookup culture. The whole point of the hookup culture is you have as much sex as you can with as little kind of emotional intimacy and romantic involvement as you can. It's being single but having sex. But Paul is saying singleness is good, singleness is better, but that does not mean that you can be a Christian single and be having sex. He says actually God's got a better way for us to live. He's saying Christian singleness always means celibacy because Paul knows he understands what sex really is. He understands that God has designed and reserved sex. He's created it for marriages between one man and one woman. That is there to create this deep union between two people. It's there ultimately not to talk to us about ourselves, but to talk to us about him, about our relationship with him, the wonderful union between Christ and his bride, us, the church. He knows the only appropriate context, the only safe context for sexual activity is in a one-man, one-woman marriage. That's why he says in verse 9, when he's talking to the unmarried and widows, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it's better to marry than to burn with passion. Or he says, similar to the betrothed in verse 36, if anyone thinks he's not, he's not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes. Let them marry, it's no sin. He's saying, we've got to be careful to understand this rightly, that strong sexual desire is a reason to consider marriage. Because marriage is the only context in which uh, sexual activity should take place. But he's not saying that's what marriage is about. He's not saying marriage is just there to kind of let you expend your sexual urges. And therefore, he's not saying that strong sexual desire kind of legitimates any type of marriage. This isn't the only thing Paul says about marriage. We need to go and read Ephesians 5, the beautiful picture of marriage as Christ and the church. Uh, Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about this Genesis plan coming into the day, the coming together of one man and one woman to come to. We need to take the fullness of what the Bible says. But what Paul is doing is he's using this point to show us that they can't stay single and just think, well, that's fine, I'll just sleep around. He says, no, no, Christian singleness is an invitation to find fullness of life in being celibate, in not having sex. That's one misunderstanding. Paul thinks, I've got to make this clear as I talk to you about singleness. And the second misunderstanding he knows people might think he needs to clear up is the idea that being single is a kind of spiritually superior state. That being single gets you closer to God. It makes it this ultra-holy, ultra-good Christian that puts you on a better footing before God than someone who's married. And it seems the Corinthians may have thought that. Their question in their letter or their statement was probably something around that kind of idea because actually it seems they were tempted to end some of their marriages. They thought maybe singleness is really good. We'll end our marriages to kind of get closer to God. And Paul's like, no, no, no. Marriages that exist are a good thing, a good gift from God. They're to continue. So in verses 12 to 16, he's talking to those who, to Christians who are married to a non-Christian. And he says, wherever possible, those marriages should continue. He says, so long as the non-Christian is happy for that marriage to continue, it should continue because it's a good thing, a gift from God. Right at the start of the chapter, he says that married people should keep having lots of sex, verses 2 to 5. Because sex, he says, is a really important part of marriage. He's saying you don't need to stop being married to get closer to God. You enjoy whatever gift it is that God has given to you. This point is also what he explains. As you read through this chapter, it's all about marriage and divorce and singleness. You get to verses 17 to 24, and suddenly he's talking about circumcision and slavery. 
And you think, come on, Paul, keep your mind on the task. We're talking about singleness and marriage here. What are you doing? He's actually making a really important point. He's using those things to illustrate the point that nothing about how we live, nothing external impacts our standing before God, impacts our relationship before God. He kind of has this, um, this motif in that paragraph of it's good to remain as you were when you became a Christian. He says, if you're uncircumcised, that's fine, stay uncircumcised. If you are free, that's fine, stay free. He's saying, because that's a declaration to yourself and the world that my relationship with God is not based on anything that I have done or anything that I, have, I do. It's all based on what he has done. It's a statement of the grace of God, an example of the grace, the gift of God. And that's not an immovable command, because to slaves, he says, it's fine to say as a slave. It doesn't affect your position before God. But then he says in brackets, but actually, if you can get your freedom, well, why not do it? So he's not saying if you're single and you become a Christian, you're stuck, you can't get married. He's just saying you don't need to. None of those things change your position before God. Your position before God as a son or daughter is dependent purely on what he has done, not on you. Circumcised, uncircumcised, slave or free, married or single. And so singleness is not a kind of spiritually superior state that gets you closer to God. Which, of course, then raises the question for us, well, Paul does seem to think it's a better state, a better way of living life. Why is that? And that's what he goes on to doing kind of the final third of the chapter, to give us actually really practical reasons why it is better in many ways to remain single. Three reasons he gives. First one in verses 26 to 27 is he talks about the present distress. And actually, this is probably literally something happening in the city of Corinth at the time. Many scholars believe there may have been quite a bad famine at about this time. And so Paul's kind of saying, in view of kind of the real difficulty of just surviving at the moment, getting married really shouldn't be your first priority. It's really not going to be a helpful thing. He's saying, actually, because we can take it um, open-handedly, it's a good gift. But actually, sometimes it's just not a wise situation in which to get married. And then he says, verses 28 to 31, Singleness is practically preferable because time has grown short. He says in verse 31, for the present form of this world is passing away. He's saying with Jesus' death and resurrection and ascension to be with God the Father, the coming age, the new age, the new creation, it's breaking in. There's this overlap of the ages that we enjoy now. So he's not saying, you know, Jesus is coming back tomorrow, why bother getting married today? He's saying time is at a premium. This time is so precious, and the fact that that new age of new creation has broken in should change everything. It should change our priorities. It should change the way we make decisions. It should change the actions we take. And therefore, he says, we should think seriously about how we use the time. And think seriously, is marriage the best way of using time, which is so precious, time which is at such a premium? Which no doubt links to the last reason, uh, verses 32 to 35 where he talks about freedom from anxieties. He says, you know, married people, they're anxious about the things of the world, about how to please their spouse. And he's saying that's right. That's a good thing. They should be. But he says, single people, unmarried people, they have the freedom to be anxious about the things of the Lord. He has this beautiful phrase. He says, single people can give undivided devotion to the Lord. He says, what opportunity. There's a guy who's just written a fantastic book on singleness, Sam Albury, and he makes this really personal um, observation that we think of singleness as the absence of something. We think singleness is the absence of a partner, the absence of a spouse. Here in 1 Corinthians 7, for Paul, singleness is the presence of something. It's the presence of opportunity. Singleness isn't, oh, you haven't got all the good stuff other people have got. No, no, no. 
is you've got some of the best things. You've got the opportunity for undivided devotion to the Lord. He's saying singleness is a wonderful, wonderful way to thrive as a follower of Jesus. So there's no doubt from a whistle-stop tour of 1 Corinthians 7 that the Bible says, the New Testament teaches us, singleness is a really good thing. And it is a way that we as followers of Jesus can thrive in life with him. Paul, we say it time again, seems to think it's even better. There's so many advantages, he says, to being single. That, of course, then takes us to some really practical questions. That's what the Bible says, his wonderful, beautiful vision of godly singleness why is that then so often not our experience? Why do so many of us not actually believe deep down that singleness really is a good thing? Why do so many of us who are single in church contexts really struggle to feel like we're able to thrive? Sometimes we feel like we're trying to survive rather than actually that we're getting to thrive. What's kind of gone wrong? Was God wrong? Was Paul wrong? Maybe the gift isn't quite so good. Maybe it's the kind of gift you think, oh, okay, I'll return that. I'll get rid of that. Charity shop, whatever. I don't think there's a problem with the gift. Or the giver. I think the problem is the stuff around it. You see, I think we've built kind of just ways of thinking about church, ways of understanding what it means to live as a Christian, where this good gift of singleness just doesn't quite fit. It's a bit like if you um, had a, you know, maybe one of your children or a nephew or someone, and you get them a Brio level crossing. You know, Brio is that brilliant kind of wooden train track stuff. And you get them a level crossing and you give it to them. If they don't have any other Brio, any tracks or any trains, that gift's not particularly helpful, not particularly fun, not particularly good. It only works, it only makes sense when you've got other bits of the set to go with it. And when they have, it's great, and it'll be great fun, and they'll love playing with it. But actually, if the stuff around it isn't right, it's just not going to work. I think that's what's happened with this gift of singleness. The gift is good, but actually there's a whole load of other stuff that God has told us is about how we should live, who we should be as his people, which we often don't get right, which means singleness doesn't fit. And so if we want to be churches where singles really can thrive, we've all got a role to play in kind of doing all that stuff around the edge, which makes this gift, helps it to be received as a good thing. And I think there, well, there's so many things we could say there, but I think there are three which are maybe most important, three things we need to rethink. Each one we're going to rethink through, I'm going to zip us through them now. The first thing is we need each one of us to rethink God's good gift of sex. We often have wrong ideas about or wrong understandings of sex, which leads to singleness feeling pretty implausible and not feeling like it's possible for us to thrive as singles. This is often rooted in many kind of lies that the world around us believes about sex, which then come in and affect us, and we believe them too. There are lots of ways we could talk about, but probably the most prominent at the moment in the world around us is the lie that your sexuality or your sexual desires are your identity. It's this idea that you are how you feel. And it's a narrative we hear in the world around us. It's a narrative you hear actually often very kind of explicitly in TV and films and all sorts. That you kind of you look inside yourself to find who you really are. You look inside yourself and you find your sexual desires to find your true self. And that's why in our culture it's so important to us, people around us, to identify as gay or bi or straight or pansexual or asexual, whatever it may be we find inside of ourselves. And then the narrative tells us you find who you really are, and you embrace that, and you express that, and you've got to live that out. You've got to express that in your life to find true freedom and true fulfillment, because that's who you are. And anything else is just kind of suppressing it and pushing it down. 
That's a narrative you literally see in TV and films. You see it in interviews with celebrities who come out as gay. Oh, I found who I really am, and now I found real life. But you see, the problem is, that is a terrible way of making your identity. Any identity based on what you feel inside, what you find inside yourself, is a terrible way of making identity. For one, it's inherently unstable. It's based on things that change. Our desires, our feelings inside, they change. All good studies show that even sexual orientation, our sexual romantic desires, can change at different points in our lifetime. It's not a way to get a stable identity. It's also uh, not helpful because it's ambiguous. We look inside ourselves, and we often find desires that conflict. I really want this, and I really want this, but they can't go together. So which one is really me? Which one do I choose? How do I find true happiness in life by embracing who I am? It doesn't work. And actually, the real reason this doesn't work is that none of us really do it. It's a complete and utter sham. Because actually what we do is we look inside ourselves and we kind of cherry-pick the desires that fit with what culture tells us. We all agree there are certain desires we might have inside that if we looked in and found them, we wouldn't say, oh, yeah, that's me, I'm going to embrace that and express that. And the culture around us wouldn't say, yeah, that's you, embrace that and express that. There are certain sexual desires we wouldn't say that of. You might look inside yourself and find a great desire for killing people and being really bloodthirsty. You wouldn't say, it's who I am, so I've got to embrace it and express it, and you've got to accept it. The whole thing is a sham. We don't really do this. It just doesn't work. Building your identity and your sexuality is a terrible idea. We need a different identity. We need an identity that is secure, that is solid, that is stable, that can truly bring us fullness of life. And that's an identity that comes from God. The only identity that can really do that is a Christian identity where God adopts you as his son or his daughter, where you're in a secure position, nothing based on what you do, what you find inside, what people think of you, how you live your life, all based on what he has done in his son and the fact that he welcomes you into that. So you know that at every moment of every day you are loved and you are delighted over and you are safe and you are secure. It's a wonderful, wonderful identity. And therefore you know that if that is a true identity, that's who you truly are. You know that true life, fullness of life, real joy, satisfaction comes from living out that identity. It comes from living God's way. When God says, live my way, he's not saying jump through some hoops to try and show how good you are. He's saying, come and be the real you and find fullness of life. When God tells me not to have a boyfriend, not to go and sleep with guys, he's saying, come and enjoy fullness of life by being single, by being celibate, by living out your identity, who you are as a child of God. So we need to rethink sex if we're going to help us as singles to thrive uh, uh, in Christian life. Celibacy can be a life-giving way of living life. And the second one, we need to rethink love. And this actually is very closely linked to the whole misunderstandings about sex. We need to rethink um, love because often we think that the only way to feel loved is to have sex. We live in a culture where the only form of intimacy we understand is sexual. And therefore, any intimacy that takes place, we're always kind of suspicious of it as being sexual. But actually, there's a little bit of truth underlying some of this, which is that we do need love. You see, every one of us is hardwired with a need for human love. You see that in Genesis 2, right near the start of the Bible, where the first humans there, and they have the most perfect relationship with God, living a perfect world, and yet God looks and says, something's not right, something's not good. The thing that's not good is that this first human is on their own. And as humans, we're not designed to thrive on our own. And so God creates even human community starts. We are given a, a created with a God-given need for human community. 
But the mistake of the world around us, and actually of many of us as Christians, is is thinking that to receive that love we need, we need to be having sex. We kind of squash the two together. We don't really believe you can be loved without having sex. But again, there are huge problems with that. There's huge problems in that it's completely undermined by history, and it's completely undermined by other cultures. You can look back through history, you can look around the world today at other cultures and find there is genuine expressed love and intimacy with there being no hint of sex involved, no hint of romance involved. It's just patently not true that love can only exist where there's sex, and it's not true that we need sex to exist. We need love, but we can receive that in celibate context, in non-romantic context. And for us as Christians, this should be a really obvious thing. Because we're taught to be people who love. It's striking that when Jesus teaches about love, he doesn't use sex, he doesn't use marriage, he uses friendship. So John 15, the night he's betrayed, Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You want to know the greatest love? Jesus says, look at friendship. That's where you can see it. And you see friendships in the Bible like Ruth and Naomi and Jonathan and David in the Old Testament. Jesus and the Apostle John, who's sometimes called the beloved disciple in the New Testament. We should be a place where everybody gets to experience love. And we should be that because that's what Jesus commands us to do, who he commands us to be. The same night, in John 13, he says, love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Now this is like incredible love. This is self-sacrificial love. So he says this just after he's washed their feet, which is like what slaves did in the ancient world. He says this knowing the very next day he'll hang on a cross, be executed, taking upon himself all the punishment for all their sins. He says, this is how I'm loving you. Now you love each other in this same way. This is serious, serious love. And so for us, we should be asking very practically, how in my friendships, how in church family can I actively love other people? How can I show that kind of self, self um, or other preference in love, the putting others first, self-sacrificial love? How can I show that? How can I do that? And I know my own life, my own experience of kind of walking with singleness, it's experiencing friendships where I know I'm genuinely loved and that love is genuinely expressed is one of the things that's helped me to see I can be single and I can thrive. Because being single doesn't mean not being loved. It doesn't mean being left lonely and loveless. Actually, I receive wonderful love from friends in church, family, who work hard to express that. And we even had awkward conversations about how we best each receive and express love. We're talking why differently, aren't we? Sometimes even that is a really good thing to do. Be deliberate about loving other people. We've got to rethink love so that singles get to experience love to help singles to thrive. And the final one, we've got to rethink family. Often the reason people think singleness isn't a context in which you can thrive is because they think, well, you don't get to have family. You don't get to live in family, experience family, and therefore we think singleness means isolation. It means loneliness, being out on your own. And often that's because in the culture around us and in the church, we have very narrow understandings of family. Family is this kind of closed-off unit, and you know the, the great aim is to get a nice house, have your family unit, and to close the door and keep out the other people. There's that phrase, an Englishman's house is his castle. We can maybe also make it, an Englishman's family is his castle. It's kind of, you know, we're putting down, or drawing up the drawbridge, keeping people away. But the biblical picture is very, very different. The biblical picture is that as followers of Jesus, we are family. And notice it's not we're like family, it's we are family. Because we've been adopted as God's children. 
And that means that we are siblings, we are family. Whether you like it or not, we are stuck with each other. But of course, it's different to live as family than it is just to, just to be family. By the way things work, every child is born with biological family. Very sadly, not every child gets to experience family life with their biological family. It's different to live as family than to be family. Now, we are family, but then we have to choose to live as family. It's something we have to put into action, put into practice, and then everybody, married and single, gets to experience family life. And so this means often kind of opening our homes, opening our hearts to other people. It actually doesn't need to mean kind of you know, going all out and laying on a great banquet and the candelabra and polishing the silver and all this kind of stuff. It just means doing your normal life and inviting other people to join you. You might be you know, going on a day trip to Ikea, invite some people to join you. You might be having pizza and watching Britain's Got Talent, invite other people to join you. You might be decorating a room, walking your dog, just being at home, not doing an awful lot. Invite others to be with you. Because when you think about it, most of family life is not doing really special stuff. It's just doing daily life, but you do it together. And actually, by opening our families up, being deliberate like that, everybody married and single gets to experience family. Singles don't get left out, isolated, lonely, never experiencing family. We get brought into a wonderful experience of family. In my own life, actually, I uh, get to be involved in more families than many of my married friends do. I have a broader and richer experience of family than many of my friends who are married or who have kids. It's good for us as singles because we get to experience family. We get to be involved in the lives of children. It's also really good for married people and for families because married people need friends too. And children need the input of lots of people as well as mum and dad. And so we want to help singles to thrive. We need to rethink family. Making family something that we do as an expression of our identity and making it something that every person, regardless of age or uh, relationship status, gets to experience as well. So the key question, if we're Christians and we're thinking about singleness, is this whole thing of, well, is singleness good? Can singles thrive? We've seen from 1 Corinthians 7, we could have seen the same from Matthew 19, where Jesus talks about singleness, that there is no question in the eyes of the New Testament that singleness is a really good thing. It's a gift from God, a context in which we can thrive, even, Paul says, preferable to marriage. But we've also had to think through, that's not currently our experience, and why is that? And there are things that every one of us can do. There is a part for every one of us to play to change the way we do church life, to change the way we think of what it means to faithfully follow Jesus, to make singleness work, to make it a a plausible thing, make it a context in which we can thrive. And so really the the kind of place I want to leave it this morning, what I want to lay before you is a bit of a, a challenge or an invitation of what is it that God is calling you to do to help singles to thrive. What is it from those things about rethinking? What practical things can you do? And maybe even be asking God the question, what thing, God, can I do this week that is going to begin to take a step towards that? And let me just uh, highlight as well, for us singles, by the way, this is for us too. It's very easy for us to sit around as singles and kind of think, you know, when are the married people going to look after us and remember us and involve us and stuff? And hopefully they're going to do that, but also it's for us to love them. We're just as much called to love them as they're called to love us. So for us too, we should be thinking, actually, how do I be family for other people? How do I love other people? How do I play my part in this? I mean, we've got a few minutes to respond, and really what we're to do in that time is just to, to let God speak to us, to open up our eyes, okay, these are the people you could seek to bless, or these are the things you could do. Maybe we're just going to start engaging with God. Maybe I'm going to stand, if you're willing and able, I find that helpful just as a way to engage with God, and just in your own heart, begin to ask God, actually, God, okay, what do you want me to do? 
What's the thing? What's the step I'm going to take? Can I just make a little commitment with God? Okay, I've heard what you said. I'm responding. And we just invite the Holy Spirit to come and speak to us. And then I'm just going to pause for you know, 30 seconds, 60 seconds, just to leave space for him to speak to us as individuals. And uh, then I'll pray just to close. Holy Spirit, we do say we so want to uh, live out the fullness of what you've got for us, the goodness of your beautiful plan. And we say right now, just please come and speak to us. Just in the midst of all we've heard, come and highlight some things to us. And I pray for each one of us right now, just come and speak. Reveal to us what it is we can do, how we can play a part in this. Give us open ears now, we say. Just come and speak and move, Holy Spirit, we ask.